I believe in the United States of America. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And to the Republic. In one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. One nation. One God. I therefore believe it is my duty to my country to love it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. To support its constitution. Stand for the word of God. To obey its laws. It is essential that we obey God's law. A good government protects and provides for the people. As meeting the material needs of the masses through the full power of centralized government. My God shall supply all your needs. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. I will be your host today as we dive into the second part of the interview that I did with Benjamin Jacobs on roughly the early modern period, the Middle Ages, this time period up into the Reformation. So last time we finished up talking about the role of monasteries, we got a little bit into the church and kind of set the stage for this early modern period. And in this section of the interview, we're going to get a little more into the role of the church, um, also a lot into economics and the economics of feudalism and what life was like for the common person, how that person related to the people above them and around them, these types of things. And it's uh, pretty interesting. We get into a broad variety of topics here. And I will just go ahead and start off with my response to the last thing he had said in part one, where he introduced basically the beginnings of this early modern period. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a huge role that the church was playing. And like you say, at this time period, they were not the dominant power that they became to be later on, maybe a few hundred years later. But at this point in time, they still were very integral in creating the Europe that we will come to know and creating these different structures from education to intellectual movements to economies and cities and towns Mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff. That's that's a big role that they play. In many ways, the, the church never got uh, as much hard power as their ideology <laughs> made it out that they had. But this this sort of the church as a community, as an intellectual community, was in a lot of ways always the most important thing that it did. Okay. Well, let's uh, so back up one sentence there. You're saying that they didn't have as much power, basically, it sounds like, by force. They couldn't force people to do things. It was more ideological and, I guess, religious, and that was their power. Yeah. People basically gave them power and gave them authority willingly, and that mm-hmm. is how they got their power. Um, yeah. I've heard, uh, I forget the, the author is a French guy, but he wrote the, the politics of obedience. And in that he talks about how a government, a state, they have their power because the people willingly give them power and authority. It's not like this small mm-hmm. amount of people at the top of our society could force 
every citizen in their country to do something. That's not realistic. It's that people yeah. willingly do that. And he made he was making an argument that, in his opinion, there should be a revolution, but it shouldn't be a revolution of violence or of war. It should be a revolution of basically just withdrawing that authority and that power. And if people mm-hmm. did that, that would leave the government at the time or in any time, I guess, with very little power and very little say. So I guess that that is um, very similar to the church here, where at one point in time, the church became very influential. They became very powerful, but it wasn't because they could force their views on people. It was because people willingly gave them this power and authority. And then at some point, people started withdrawing that power and authority. And (laughs) yeah, that didn't play out so well for the church. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, the, you know, the, the Catholic Church came out of the fall of the Roman Empire with this hierarchy of bishops and priests and stuff. And it was pretty clear that the Pope was sort of on top because the Pope was the only patriarch in the western part of the empire. Um, in the east, they had four. Wow. <laughs> so it was a much, very different situation. Um, but, you know, everyone sort of agreed that the Pope was on top. But, you know, it, the Pope never had much physical force the at best the pope had a moderately large sized state in uh, central italy and the popes were really never good at administration or uh or you know commanding armies sounds familiar <laughs> <laughs> they, they got a lot of money uh from you know ultimately as the uh administrative apparatus of the church itself developed um in many ways due to the uh, intellectual power that they were getting from the monasteries, the, the, the popes were able eventually to be in control of appointing bishops. Like that, that's the thing that I think is the biggest surprise for a lot of people at the beginning. Um, bishops were supposed to be elected and um, there were, you know, where does that leave the Pope? Yeah. <laughs> um, ultimately, over the course of the Middle Ages, the, the elections got so problematic, they were so open to manipulation, that ultimately, you know, the Pope was supposed to be the last arbiter of these disputes, and so people would come to the Pope, but it, it became the Pope was doing nothing else other than resolving these disputes. So eventually, the Popes just said, look, we'll just pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And once that happens, that completely, that in some ways changes the relationship because now the Pope is appointing a bureaucratic hierarchy that spans the continent. But on the other hand, you know, the, the only reason that works is because everyone agrees that the Pope has the right to do that. <laughs> um, and everyone sort of says, okay, well, you're the one in charge <laughs> uh, because of these pieces of obscure, you know, uh, text in the Bible. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, that's how it happened. You know, the Pope never really, the, the Pope had a great moral authority in, in some, in some time periods, but never exactly was, uh, you know, the Popes got deposed all the time by secular leaders Hmm. and the Popes, uh, you know, for most of the middle ages were constantly being threatened by the Roman mobs which is why they never really got a got a 
a handle on the administration of the papal states and never really developed the paper papal states into anything you know that could threaten even any of their neighbors well you're Um, making my parallels a little easy for me here so you're talking (laughs) about the church which my parallel is the modern state um they are inefficient but they have a lot of wealth and resources and money that sounds very familiar. You have people at the top that aren't really all that great with um, commanding armies and organizing things and playing this administrative role. I think many people have that view of most of our modern presidents today. And you <laughs> talked about how it began with the church having elected bishops and the church was playing a much smaller role. The bureaucracy wasn't all built out. And if you go back to the beginning of America, say right after the constitution, we see a government that is much more similar to this. If you read the federalist papers, they describe a very limited government with pretty much all elected representatives that are making decisions. But as we go into modern times, we see this giant bureaucracy build out. And now the majority of government employees are definitely not elected. And the president, the person at the top, is the one that basically gets to pick their entire cabinet and pick all these different people. And so they are making these very, very impactful decisions that are one of the most important parts of running our government. A lot of these uh, positions in the State Department, for example, the Federal Reserve, places like this, they are very influential, but they are chosen by people at the top. They're not necessarily elected whereas originally that kind of was the idea. And then you mentioned how the nobility had a big influence over popes, and a lot of times they overruled them and uh, kind of forced their hands. You've got the Avignon Papacy, for example, where the French king was over, in a sense, over the church for a period of time. And there is a direct parallel here. My my comparison here is that the nobility of that time is modern corporations, roughly. And so mm-hmm. if you look at the corporate influence in government and in the state, you see a huge role there with campaign contributions and writing regulations, all the different things that they do. And mm-hmm. there's even like specific examples. For example, before Obama was actually the president, there was an email that went out and it later came out, I think through WikiLeaks, if I remember right, but there is, or maybe it was the hacked emails, the DNC, I can't remember. It was one of those or Podesta, one of those three. We can look it up later. But the point was there's an email that was leaked out that showed a list of all these people that Obama should have in his cabinet. And the letter came from someone at Citibank. So you have a corporation that wrote a list Mm -hmm. of all these cabinet members that the president should appoint, and it turns out he ended up appointing almost all of them. And so (laughs) there is some very direct influence that corporations have over the state, just like the nobility had over the pope. But at the same time, the church and the pope were kind of the head of Christendom and had a lot of power and influence, but they were really influenced behind the scenes by this other group, and it gets complex. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd say the part that I agree with most is the complexity. Um, you know, we have a lot of institutions in modern society that are non-governmental and yet vitally important. Um, you know, uh, academic institutions and uh, professional organizations and things like that, industrial societies that make 
you know, recommendations and decisions that don't really have the force of law, but which have a lot of persuasive impact, uh, you know, in terms of things like, you know, some set of uh, engineers back in the late 1800s picked a rail gauge for reasons (laughs) and we're still using that rail gauge. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that, that influences our lives deeply. They're not elected, but it's also like, are you going to have elections about every little thing? Yep. Someone's got to do it. (laughs) Someone's got to do it. So someone just picks a standard and everyone else says, it's not worth arguing about this. Let's just use that standard. (laughs) They seem like they know what they're doing. Makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) For, you know, a lot of the peasants in the middle ages, they're worried about not dying. (laughs) Very important. (laughs) And they live in a world that they can't possibly understand and there's this organization that's out there that says, look, you really don't need to worry about all this stuff. Just do what we say. Yeah. <laughs> or like, we'll try and explain it to you. There's this guy, he's your friend, Jesus, and blah, blah, blah. And that's, you know, to a certain extent, for a, from a peasant's point of view, they probably don't get the details of Augustinian doctrine, but so long as they feel like they've got some control over their lives, that's, that's the important thing. And, um, you know, and the church higher, you know, the people in these, in the church hardly ever got along, you know, the, the arguments between these theologians were intense and, and fairly bitter, but they were all at the end of the day, still part of the church, uh, and yeah, I, I think that that's a, it's an important part of both sort of modern society, even getting into, you know, what you're saying about the modern state system and, and comparisons with the medieval church, that they're not monolithic. Uh, there's, you know, all these people who have different points of view, different motivations and uh, different goals uh, that are operating Sometimes it cross purposes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, usually from within this institutional framework that exists for some, you know, some of it was set up intentionally and some of it was not. <laughs> some of it just evolved. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned that the the general person that lived in society at this time, the commoner, the peasant, they probably didn't care a whole lot about the deep theological issues within the church. They were pretty much just told that this is how it is. This is how you live. This is what you do. And they said, okay, they felt like they, you said they wanted to have a little bit of control over their lives, have a little bit of power where they can make some decisions. And they were given that and that that made them feel a little better about the system, and they felt like they they could be content, basically. They were content with their lot in life and with the role the church was playing. And that I don't even know if they cared about the system. They just wanted to not die of plague, you know? Okay, okay. <laughs> they just wanted their crops not to fail in the next year, and the, police, the priest came out and said some stuff and uh, sprinkled some holy water on their, their livestock, and, you know, everyone had a feast. Oh. Nice. It's a nice ending. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's these rituals that make life feel more safe, uh, feel more comprehensible, that, like, things are this way because God wants them to be this way, and we just need to do our best and, you know, 
plant our crops and harvest our grain and you know hopefully it won't hail in in june this year yeah so kind of like how we have these rituals like voting maybe that make people feel much more powerful like they have a say in the system and their vote counts you know all this kind of stuff and really they don't care about the deep political issues in general most people don't care about that and my Parallel here, obviously, is uh, politics to theology in the modern day is politics. And people don't really care about that. The common person doesn't. They really just want to live their lives. They're not really worried about dying of plague or their crops failing, but they want to make sure that they can pay their bills, feed their family, and watch Netflix every night and do whatever they want to do, have a car, you know, healthcare, some, some basic things that they feel like they're entitled to. That's all they really care about. And they're content with that. And the, the state is where you have these bureaucrats and these experts and scientific studies that go on behind the scenes and these uh, different government officials that are experts in these different fields. And they talk about economic theory and political theory and all these different things that are way above, you know, me, the common person. So I will just leave that to them. They handle their thing as long as I get to have my job and pay my bills and I'm content and I have some say, I can vote. So, so yeah, I, I'm the one truly in control. And generally, they let the system kind of carry on and they give it power willingly. And they're, they're pretty cool with that. And, and it actually works fairly well in modern times, just like it worked fairly well in those times. Yeah, I mean, I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You don't have to agree with all of it. <laughs> that's, that's part of your role here is to, to fight yeah. back against something that I might be a little off on. We need multiple perspectives. For example, I had um, an anarchist as the very first person I interviewed. Then I had a, a guy that was a Christian humanist theologian professor, and then a Catholic that came on and talked about the Catholic view of the Reformation and stuff, and right. another history guy that we went into all kinds of stuff. And so I'm trying to get a very broad range. I've got some folks coming on later that are very left-leaning, so that should offer the other side of things too so yeah sure. hopefully we can get many perspectives so listeners can make up their own minds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the other aspect i did want to ask you about uh before we move out of this early system would be feudalism in general and is there a rough parallel to the modern employer employee relationship where you have say, a company that has employees, and the company is incentivized to make sure their employees are content, so they stay working there, they keep their good workers, and they want to make sure they do that. But at the same time, it's selfish. They just want to make a profit, and ultimately, they're the ones in control of this economic situation. I guess a lot like in the feudal system, you had the lords that were ultimately in charge of the peasants, but they wanted to make sure the peasants were fairly content, at least, that they stayed alive, and they protected them. But ultimately, it was pretty selfish because they just wanted a piece of what they grew would that be a fair comparison there uh (laughs) i wish okay (laughs) tear it apart um yeah i i mean in the current capitalist system um i I would so i would say in the fifth you know in the you know 1890s to the 1960s there was a, a concept called welfare capitalism that certainly operated along the lines that you're talking about where employers have an incentive to keep their employees happy. Uh, you know, in, in my private sector experience, that's, uh, 
that's long gone. <laughs> um, people do the bare minimum to just sort of keep their salaries competitive with everyone else in the field and otherwise just, you know, uh, are, are not going to any length to take care of their employees in any way. Just, um, you know, <laughs> especially in, uh, in retail or food service, it's pretty much just keep them from quitting for the next two weeks. <laughs> yeah, if you can. <laughs> If you can, and if they quit, okay, well, whatever. Yeah, that sounds about right. So we've probably um, graduated out of the feudal system in modern times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the in the in the feudal era, there was there was a you know certainly there were bad actors, um, to be sure, but there was an element of responsibility that was reinforced by personal connections. I mentioned the responsibility to feast your peasants every year. Yes, at least once. Uh, th- there were interpersonal bonds it, the in the feudalist system in general if you could sum it up in one sentence it's not about laws it's not about economic modes of production it's about interpersonal ties being the basis of the entirety of society um and these interpersonal ties were manifested through the legal system and all this stuff but it, it was this this sharing of uh mutual obligations Now, certainly some people were on top <laughs> always uh and yeah but um the and you know the the lords had no compunction about like i've said you know uh using physical force to extract rents and you know good behavior and things like that but for the most part the the peasants were um compliant um and the lords had lots of incentives to keep as much as no one had any expectation of participatory government or anything like that. The, the lords had a lot of incentives to keep people basically content or, you know, keep the, the anger down to a bare minimum. <laughs> and you, you see in the legal records, um, you know, peasants, you know, there will be case places where the lords win case after case but the peasants just are not happy and um you know eventually the lord gives in and the you know the peasants would use every trick in the book from you know the modern industrial handbook to the passive resistance that you see in, in slave societies where you know, slow downs intentional intentional feigned stupidity um to you know organized strikes to you know burning down the manor house you know know, attacking uh the lord's men at night when no one was around you know the 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 full gamut and you know so it it ended up being very much uh the lord was on top the lord had the ability to use physical violence against individual peasants but if the peasants were organized they could exert force back uh, or they could exert exert pressure back, and so there was um, more of a element of mutual, you know, uh, of mutual obligations. And then I should also say that the peasants themselves, uh, they had their own conflicts within themselves. There were murders, there were assaults, there were you know robberies, what have you. But at the end of the day, um, the most important thing that peasants valued was their reputation amongst the other peasants. And that was because if, you know, if things go bad, <laughs> um, the people who are going to save you from starving to death are the, are your neighbors. Yeah. Um, and so, and that, that was really all there was. And of course there's limitations to that because if everyone's starving, 
well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you're you're on your own. Uh, but, you know, there, there were certainly a, a lot of inherent strength in having that kind of communal series of relationships. Okay. Um, and the other side of it is, though, if you were unpopular, you also were on your own. <laughs> um, people who... Uh, who uh, annoyed their neighbors too many times might not survive the next bad harvest and stuff like that. Oh, no good. <laughs> so, yeah. so yes, you, you would say that this would be more analogous at least to decades past when companies did have more of an incentive to keep their employees happy. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of parallels here that you're just calling out relationships were more important at that time, mm-hmm. even in yeah. that setting. And so the modern setting would be the workplace. And I, I would guess my impression, at least I wasn't around then, but my impression was that a few decades ago, relationships were a lot bigger deal than they are in the modern age of having a million Facebook friends and only one real friend. And yes, that seems to be the way that it was then. Reputation used to mean a lot more then than it does now, it seems. Yeah. Again, I wasn't alive at the time, so I don't know for sure. Yeah. But my impression yeah. is that that's the way it was and that you did have groups of employees that did organize and they did have power. You had the unions. You mentioned that. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I, I think I'm with you on this, that if there's going to be an analogy here, it would be in kind of the economic system or the corporate system that existed maybe a few decades ago at the latest. And what we're into now is something different. And so with that, to carry on that theme, I guess, um, what happened to the feudal system? Because it didn't exist later on. What changed? What did it, how did that evolve? What happened? So in some ways it persisted for a really long time. Um, You know, uh, notoriously Russia didn't, and serfdom until 1905. True. Um, but for most of Europe, uh, it went through a, a series of stages of evolution out of itself. Um, one of the things that happened is that uh, as markets developed in, in, you know, we talked about the economy and these trading towns, as those became more and more important sources of economic uh, strength, and as nobles and peasants participated more in this sort of regional and global economy, um, it became more important to have money rather than stuff. Um, you know, if, if I want to buy a fancy new sword, uh, getting 90 bags of grain isn't a sword. <laughs> you know, so I, I need a way to do this trade. So um, landlords would find ways, uh, and it was a very slow process and every manor operated differently. And it, you know, there were back and forths depending on, you know, whether the Black Death was happening and, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. But gradually over time in, particularly in England and France, um, a lot of these in-kind rents. uh, So instead of, you know, in-kind meaning I give you a thing for my rent. So I give you 90 bags of grain or a cow. Um, a lot of these in-kind <laughs> rents got converted into money rents. Um, and so that, as you get into the high middle ages and the late middle ages, which let me check my dates here again. Okay. High middle ages, we're talking 1000 to 1300 or 1350. Uh, I like 1350 cause it's the year of 1348 is the black death and 1350 is rounder. Um, <laughs> And then late Middle Ages, you're talking 1350 to 1500. Um, so in, in over the course of those years, you 
by the end of that period, you saw most feudal obligations were being paid in terms of money um, rather than, um, you know, you know, actual physical obligations. And in uh, France and England in particular, uh, the value of serfdom gradually declined as the importance of money went up because a lot of the, the serfs obligations were physical labor uh, being d- performed on the Lord's land and things like that. Like you have to, you know, for two weeks, you have to not be harvesting your field. You have to come harvest my field kind of thing. And that was very unpopular with the serfs. Uh, but, you know, also as we moved into a money economy, not actually particularly valuable for the Lord either. So uh, those those obligations were converted into money and then eventually just for simplicity's sake, everybody just paid the same thing <laughs> eventually. Okay. Um, and so that was sort of, feud, you know, the manorial system of feudalism in its, its sort of, you know, latest form. What then happened is that as you got into the 1500s on, you know, this process sort of continued where you, you know, money was more and more important and these lords were continually, you know, they were supposed to be, you know, doing their social function as initially as warriors, but later sort of as government functionaries and people at court. And they had more and more land, which it was harder and harder for them to personally manage. And, um, you know, it became very difficult to efficiently extract resources from their properties in these contexts. And again, everywhere in Europe, this happened at a different rate in different ways. In England, it happened first, uh, but it's called the enclosures. And basically the Lords realized that they could be making way more money selling wool to uh, the cloth trade in uh, initially in Holland, and then later as uh, industrialization got started in England and the textile mills in, in Manchester and places like that, um, they started fencing off land that uh, was theirs, but which had traditionally been held as common land. So th- there was usually a bit of pasture in every village that everybody got to graze their cows on and stuff. And which was managed by the village, but it was technically the Lord's land. Uh, similarly, yeah. there were forest areas, which uh, were technically the Lord's land, but which everybody agreed had to be kept as forests because when you're living again, in a sort of a pre-modern pre petrochemical society, forests are actually an important source of industrial goods. You know, you need resin to do, um, you know, all sorts of things, you know, uh, waterproofing and things like that. Uh, even ponds and marsh areas are places where you can harvest um, flax for making linen and things like that. Uh, and the the big thing in Northern Europe was the oak trees, the acorns were things that you would use to fatten pigs. Um, yeah. And so, of course, you know, if you cut down these woods and turn them into sheep pasture, uh, you're just, you know, every it makes everybody's life harder. But, you know, it's technically the Lord's land. They can make more money from sheep. And it, it wasn't necessarily as uh, open and closed as it's often made to sound. You know, it, it's not just the, the Lord's coming in and laughing as the orphans cry as they enclose the territory <laughs> and shove sheep on them. But, you know, it, it probably started with Lords who had land that was 
decimated by the Black Death and stuff like that. And then other lords realized that there was money to be made and they, they found ways to edge people off land and things like that or do the enclosures. But it was this gradually building process where the land was enclosed and there was no longer a need for that many peasants. And so they were gradually being driven off the land and into towns and cities uh, which in England definitely set the stage for the Industrial Revolution much later, but you you had all these this critical mass of people just kind of waiting around for something to do and participating in the kinds of industries that were available there at the time. Um, in what's crazy is, you know, this process starts, you can say it starts 1350 or something thereabouts in England as enclosures gradually start to happen and it builds slowly, slowly, slowly over the next couple centuries. It doesn't really start to happen in France. In some ways it didn't end up happening. Some enclosures were happening, but by the time you got to the French revolution, you still have a major peasant class and they ended up basically getting the land redistributed to them. And so you had a lot of smallholder farms rather than full on enclosures. And that had an interesting effect on slowing the pace of industrialization in France. But then in other places, like in Italy um, and Germany, you definitely got land enclosures um, that, you know, had uh, good and bad effects there. But again, it happened really late. Uh, Often you're talking, you know, 15 or you're talking like 1600s or even, you know, arguably in Italy, it didn't really go into high drive, uh, into overdrive until after the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a, it's a real interesting process that happened at different rates in different places. By the time you get to, you know, certainly by the 20th century, in most places in Europe, feudalism has died out due to this economic evolution. But um, in you know, in a lot of places, it took a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So you're getting more into what sounds more familiar to me in modern times than, I guess, the feudal system. You're talking more about how the nobles and, uh, by reference, the corporations of <laughs> nowadays are focusing more on profits. They are doing right. what's best for generating as much wealth and expansion as possible mm-hmm. and not necessarily what's best for the land or for the people right. or for the employees. Right. And you mentioned how they needed fewer peasants as they were moving into this different economic role, the way that they were carrying things out. Just like in today's world, there are fewer employees needed as you have things like technology and automation and outsourcing, Mm -hmm. things like this. And so, yeah, I'm seeing at least some more parallels going on there that, yeah, we've probably moved out of that feudal mindset for that parallel and into more of this aspect. And that's sounding very familiar, but uh, of course, all parallels break down now, just break down at some point. And one of the things that is interesting with that is that now we have technology and In a way, technology, especially digital technology, is something that's so revolutionary and new that I think there's uh, probably no way of bringing (laughs) a a historical parallel to that. That's just 
something you can't really do. And so it'll be interesting to see the influence that that has, because even though we can look at these historic events, see how things played out, and if you have this group in power and this group is oppressed and, you know, roughly what tends to happen in all these different societies, all these different empires, and you can draw a lot of parallels and learn a lot about that, and you can apply that to modern times. But yeah, I think we do have aspects that you can't really draw very many parallels well, to. Well, it's interesting that the this discussion of technology and stuff... Um, I think there's some interesting parallels in the economic arguments about the stuff that happened uh, in when you get into the, the 1700s and the 1800s that were happening in England. As you know, economics as a discipline started to develop, one of the arguments that was made was that you know as these technologies developed, sure they put a bunch of people out of work, but they created whole new industries. And so like, um, you know, the, the classic example, and I'm, you know, I'm not remembering the commentator's name and I'm not remembering the specific examples. So forgive me. Uh, but <laughs> they said that, you know, sure. It takes much less effort to make a dozen pins with these machines than it used to take to do them by hand. And so to a certain extent, we're putting a bunch of artisans out of work, but this factory that we've built that, you know, spams out all these pins left, right, and center actually employs, you know, tens of thousands of people. And so, you know, it, it's all a wash. Yeah. Modern commentators have then gone back and said, well, yes, but they're different people that like, the people who used to be pin artisans, like, you know, if that was ever a job, <laughs> you, I'm sure it was. <laughs> um, they, you know, they, they were put out of work and they didn't necessarily get jobs in the new factories, but a whole lot of other people did. And so the net job rate may be sort of similar, but in terms of the individuals, it can be catastrophic. I think that that's an interesting parallel with what we're seeing in, in, in this modern digital technology that, you know, if you're a coal miner, it's very difficult for you to make a transition to coding. Um, oh, come on. They can do I, it. You know, <laughs> some of them have. And, you know, it, if you give, give people the, you know, economic time and the training that's necessary, sure, some people can make the transition. Um, but, you know, in general, uh, the way our society is currently structured, that's not necessarily a thing that's happening. At the same time, there are crazy parts of this this in internet economy um, that no one thinks about. Like, it, uh, just from anecdotal experience, I worked for uh, a couple months before I got a, a much better job in my field, but I was working in a warehouse um, The the company had was five years old. They'd gone from having five five employees, you know, working out of the back of someone's apartment to having a couple hundred employees and uh, running uh, this giant warehouse. And what they did was that people overseas who look at like eBay and American online commerce sites often can't get the stuff shipped overseas uh, either efficiently or sometimes even at all. And so they would this company set up a portal that you could log in through that portal and buy all the stuff you want to 
to buy and stuff would get shipped to this warehouse. And then when you get to a certain threshold where it was economically viable, they would put everything on a pallet and ship it to Ukraine or whatever. (laughs) And, you know, it's totally legal, but it just, you know, it, it makes it, it's more efficient to have the economy of scale for the shipping. And so, you know, it's this whole little industry that's developed around, um, you know, online commerce that, you know, no one's even going to think about. Everyone's focusing on how Amazon's putting Toys R Us out of business, but um, they're not thinking about some of these other industries that develop as a result. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely so many different aspects that get influenced here. And uh, one of the other interesting things as I've been drawing many parallels for this season (laughs) I'm doing is that uh, obviously, like I said, you can't do exact parallels. They never play out exactly. History rhymes. It's not the same song. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So one of the other interesting things is that timing doesn't play out exactly the same. And so even though I'm making these parallels between these historical institutions, it might be that the institution of the high middle ages compares well with the modern institution, but some economic aspect pairs well, like you mentioned with the industrial revolution. (laughs) And so even though like in modern times, we have all these things happening at once, if we're going to look at historical parallels, we kind of have to pick out of different time zones, Mm -hmm. different eras. And so it, it gets interesting. We definitely don't want to put too much emphasis on making analogies. But at the same time, we can learn a lot by looking at history. We just have to figure out what aspects to look at. (laughs) And those, those, those interactions are going to play out in different ways because, you know, you have this industrial analogy interacting against this feudal analogy. And, you know, in the actual time period that didn't happen. And so (laughs) things are going to turn out differently. And then the other thing is that, you know, just because the pace of communication is so much faster now, things are going to happen more quickly. You know, uh, it it took, you know, decades. Let me put it. So getting back to the middle ages, one of my favorite things about the middle ages, when you read these debates between the, the scholars in the middle ages, uh, they would they would throw around the H word a lot and declare each other heretics and stuff, but oh. uh, and there were some there were you know they weren't they didn't really burn heretics until later, uh, but in, in the early <laughs> Middle Ages there were consequences, but it took so long so long for communication to happen that often people would die <laughs> before the actual <laughs> church got around to being like oh that that guy was a heretic. well just exhume their body put them on trial yeah yeah, we'll do this all over again (laughs) sometimes they wouldn't even bother with that because you know and again these 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 debates were limited to the very small portion of the population that was even literate yeah so in, in modern society having with communication flying around as fast as it can we can play things out you know in in weeks when it used to take years yeah, yeah, it's interesting, especially with the rate of technological advancement. Yeah, things are just happening at breakneck speed, but in these times, it didn't no. at all. And it might have <laughs> taken a thousand years for some of these changes to happen and these evolutions to take place, yeah. but today that might happen in two decades. Yep. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, 
uh, getting back to these changes and shifts that were going on with these structures and institutions and all these things that were changing coming into more of the high middle ages and coming into the Renaissance. One of the big deals that you have kind of alluded to is the rise of cities and how city life was very different. Could you talk a little bit about urbanization and how the life of the local person might have shifted from being at least the majority of society living out on farms and being more rural to these urban centers becoming more of a a, a beacon of commerce and industry yeah. and everything else? Well, the first thing to say is that like we didn't get to the point where the majority of the human population, even within specific areas, was living in an urban area until well into the industrialization, like uh, the industrial revolution. Let me start by saying that. So you, know, you, the majority of England lived in, on farms until, you know, the 1900s or past that. Yeah. Um, or the 1800s, somewhere in there. But um, that being said, there's the European, the classic European village was sort of an interesting thing in that in many ways it was kind of urban it was just a very 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 small urban place where everybody farmed (laughs) 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 they they, you know you had uh you know your spiritual needs were met you had you had your church you had your blacksmith you had your baker all the all the basics of civilized society but it's just that everybody including the baker the blacksmith and the priest were also farmers um (laughs) When you get into urbanization, I think for me, the key thing that separates a city in the Middle Ages from a town or a village is that the majority of the population in that settlement are not farmers anymore. That said, they had um, much uh, more rudimentary land use controls than we have today. Um, even as late as you know, Victorian era England, in London, you would have people running uh, uh, chicken farms <laughs> in, in huh. London. So <laughs> it's possible to overstate this, but, um, you know, for the most part, most of the people who were there economically were dependent on trades or day laboring or starving to death because they had none of those things. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's that kind of situation which is very different from the life in the village where everybody farms at least some of the time um yeah that's that's the big difference i would say uh and and you can say that for any time between you know the, the time that city started getting refounded up until uh you know the end of the middle ages okay so with this focus on trade and this market economy and this kind of stuff, you had the rise of the merchants and the bankers, mm-hmm. the Medici and the Borgias and those types of yeah. people. Um, what what did that look like? How did those roles evolve into being just period? How did they come to be? And then how did they go from being this kind of new upstart class, I guess they ended up becoming Mm -hmm. to one of the most powerful groups in a city or in an area. So the evolution is really interesting and it went through a bunch of fits and starts. So let me, and it's probably important to come at it from two different sides. So let me start, start coming at it from the structural side. Uh, You, you had the development of two major sort of industrial centers, again, industrial sort of in air quotes here. Um, you, you had the 
cities of Italy who were huge in the Mediterranean trade networks and were importing luxury goods from uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And then you had the cities of what we would call the low countries, which had become the center of a uh, Baltic North Sea trade system. Uh, and they both had stuff that the other wanted. Um, it's when you read about, you know, a, a lot of commentators uh, talking about the economy of this period, a lot of them, you know, make it out like the European economy was, they had nothing that anyone wanted. <laughs> um, and that's, there's sort of echoes of that in the Roman economy and right up to today, where it seems like other people have the stuff we want and the stuff we have is trash. But of course, the other people sort of see it the same way. <laughs> um, but, and that's how economies happen. Like, that's why people are trading for things. But anyway, so the, the low countries uh, started making, uh, initially they were very cheap, rough, knitted uh, or um, textile products. And they got better and better and better until essentially they became a desired luxury good in the Middle East. Uh, and it was mostly made out of wool. And so there's this huge um, system of gathering wool from various places in Northern Europe and sending it to the low countries where it would be manufactured into knitted, into textile items. Then it would get shipped um, down towards Italy. And the thing is, um, at this time, you didn't really have secure trade routes. And the people who were operating in the low countries weren't necessarily the people who were operating in Italy. And so they would meet, uh, at these fairs. Um, they originally started out as religious festivals and they would sort of bop around to a bunch of different cities, but the, the classic ones are the champagne fairs in the champagne region of France. And there was, you know, uh, five of them. So there was one happening every couple of months. Uh, and the merchants from the low countries would come down with huge caravans of their wares. And the Italians would come up from the south uh, with their wares. And they would meet at these fairs and, you know, quadruple the size of these cities for a week or something like that. And they would trade and then they'd go back. Eventually, it got to the point where it was like, well, look, I don't, uh, you know, I'm sold out of my stock. But let me, you know, if you give me the credit. I'll, you know, if you give me the money now, I'll, I'll make sure that it's sent to you and things like that. And eventually you ended up with it being, the, you know, these uh, Italian families would, who were merchants would say, all right, Bill, you need to go live in the low countries and manage our business interests up there. And the, the, the merchants in the low countries were doing the same thing. And so these long distance connections got started these long distance trade connections got started that involved the exchange of non-physical assets that would eventually all uh, be synced, right? <laughs> to use yep. a modern smartphone <laughs> metaphor, you know, you, you do this trading on paper and by letter and stuff. And then eventually you get to the point where you'd say, all right, well now we're going to send a trade caravan um, to bring all the stuff to pay for things that were bought on credit or, you know, whatever. So that's, that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is uh, a little bit more complicated and troubling, I guess. It's the social aspects of who was allowed to make money on financial transactions. 
um, that the the Bible is uh, the the Christian Bible is and the 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 Old Testament too are pretty specific that usury is any um, any transaction that bears interest. <laughs> essentially is depending Uh on how you choose to interpret that is illegal. Uh, and it's, it makes you a bad person to do that. Um, and the, for a variety of complicated technical reasons, essentially Jews in Europe were allowed to charge Christians interest. And so (laughs) the, um, Jewish communities who'd already sort of been big in trade in the, in the early middle ages, uh, because, you know, um, there were Jewish communities scattered around the Mediterranean basin and, you know, you, you're a Jewish merchant captain, you pull into a port. Um, no one else, you know, if no one else may give you the time of day, but you can find the Jewish community and people will give you the time of day. And so based on that, just like sort of very basic level of, you know, at least they won't kill me and cheat, you know, take all my stuff. Um, you know, from that basis, uh, trading links could be built up. And then you, you sort of ended up with a group of people who were slightly outside the norms established by the church, which meant that they could engage in these financial transactions. Uh, and so the, the first sort of generation of financial experts in Europe were uh, members of the Jewish community. Uh, there's a whole complicated amount of caveats to this. And, you know, not every Jew in Europe was doing this. And basically they all ended up being because they were also simultaneously being persecuted, they all ended up being the personal serfs of the kings and subject to high levels of taxation uh, in order to give them the right to be alive and not be forcibly converted (laughs) to Christianity. Um, And so uh, I actually just did an episode on this. So I encourage everybody to go listen to my show. Um, So, and I've got a couple more coming up. Uh, for more information about this. But in any case, as uh, things went on uh, and uh, Jews got put under more and more heavy persecution, their ability to engage in... Oh, and as more and more Christians were able to engage in long-distance trade, they would... as Basically, as Christians were able to get into a market, they would shove the Jews out of it. <laughs> oh, so nice. you know as the as the christians uh you know got into long distance trade they would gradually shove the jews out of that and so then you know uh the jews were subject to all sorts of rules that they couldn't own land and stuff like that and so jews ended up getting restricted to just financial transactions and then eventually christians got into financial transactions despite the bans and Jews got shoved down into being like pawnbrokers and payday lenders, essentially, uh, which made them really popular <laughs> and okay. eventually contributed to the long history of anti-Semitism and things like that. So um, the second generation of, you know, people who were charging interest uh, in Europe is actually, you know, go to flip completely the other side you have to talk about the knights templar who were actually part of the church <laughs> and theoretically mm. should not have been able to engage in any kind of usury at all but um 
essentially for people who are traveling to the Holy Land as pilgrims, what you could do is you could, you know, it was really dangerous to be traveling that distance with all sorts of bags of money hanging off of you, but you needed money to survive on this long trip. So you would give your money to the local Knights Templar chapter, and they would give you a note that said, you know, he gave us this much money. And then along your way, you could take out some of the money by showing them this note and it would be amended. And, you know, when you ultimately got to the Holy Land, you could take it all out and live there for a while and then do the same thing on the way back. Um, and of course it was initially just, uh, hoped that you would make a donation to the Knights as part of the, the deal. Ultimately it became, you know, a requirement <laughs> that, you know, in order to engage in this kind of transaction, you, you must make a donation to the Knights Templar of, you know, such and such a amount, um, which ultimately ended up looking an awful lot like interest. <laughs> But it's not. It's not. Yeah, I swear. it's not. So, well, but that that became the basis of a lot of these transactions. Like, instead of it being like, I will take, uh, f- you know, six point three percent interest on this transaction, it would say, well, on a hundred dollars, you're going to give me six dollars extra for my trouble, you know, as a as a servicing <laughs> fee or something like that. Um, and uh, you know, gradually, you know. People were found you know, in the church who were able, who were going to able to give that the okay, especially since the Knights Templar were doing it anyway. And so, you know, once that was happening, then we get back to these merchant families who had these continent-spanning connections and are already engaged in these these complicated financial transactions based on uh, promissory money that doesn't exist physically. And so once you have that, it's really easy to integrate that with this whole service fee usury model. And then eventually, you know, why, you know, the king comes to you and says, I I would like to borrow some money. And you go, well, okay, but you're gonna have to give me 150% interest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Makes sense. Didn't make that figure up, by the way. The the kings of Europe were very bad with money. (laughs) (laughs) Huh, there, there might be some analogies there with modern government <laughs> contracts. <laughs> I can see the, that. <laughs> possibly, but modern governments are nowhere near as bad as the, the kings. You know, when uh, when Edward III of, of England was engaged in the, the Hundred Years' War, like, eye-watering levels of interest. Just, like, completely absurd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's that's basically... Once that happened, you, you'd you sort of have a series of Italian families initially, uh, but there were, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of other families who were engaged in different levels of this kind of, you know, money, you know, they were making money off of money, um, which shouldn't have been legal, but was. And gradually, we've redefined usury to be not just any kind of interest bearing transaction, but ones that have way too high levels of interest (laughs) and what way too high is, is something that's sort of determined by society, I guess. Well, with that, let's go ahead and stop this section of the interview and jump back in with the next section next time on part three. We will continue this 
conversation about the Middle Ages and these parallels to modern times and how that plays out, what that looks like, what we can glean from this historical period, as well as just setting the stage of what this historical period was. What was it like? What was going on? What was life like? What were these institutions? Um, what were their influences in society? These types of things. So we'll continue that in the next portion. And with that, I would like to say thank you to my patrons, especially who are financially supporting the show, as well as everybody else who supports this show by telling people about it and spreading the word through word of mouth. I don't do any marketing, so uh, you are my marketing. Um, Also, those who have followed on Twitter and paying attention on there, and those um, especially who have left ratings and reviews, that is extremely helpful and greatly appreciated. I really do thank you for taking the time to do that. As a side note, I do want to give a reminder to the patrons that I am posting some extra content on the Patreon page. So if you're subscribed to that private feed, or if you just go to the Patreon page and listen straight from there, you will see some extra content. I've released this interview in its entirety. Um, I didn't have the intro and outro for the uh, rest of the sections, but I at least um, released that in the interview format. And that's out there so you can listen to the whole thing at your leisure. But in addition to that, with these next few weeks being the rest of the interview that I'm releasing on this main feed, I am releasing a little bit of extra content with some other interviews that I have done with other podcasts and other people. And so keep an eye out for that. If you're interested, you can see that again on the Patreon page or through that private um, feed, the podcast feed there. So I think with that, that's it. Not much to go over here. If you want to cheat and jump ahead to the next interview I'm doing, that one is actually being released right now, at least as of this recording, um, under the name of the Panoptic Podcast. And that is the group that I did that interview with. It's two guys, and we talk about uh, mainly more tech and future-oriented glimpses and trends in these institutional players, specifically government mainly, and political theory, these types of things. And it's pretty interesting. I really enjoyed that conversation. And I will be releasing that um, on this feed as the next interview that I do. But if you don't have the patience and you want to cheat and jump ahead, uh, you could technically go over to the Panoptic feed and listen to that from there. As far as I know, they've released, I think the first two parts and I think they're releasing it in three parts total if I remember right I'm not positive on that Um, but you can check that out if you're interested or you can just wait a few weeks and I will get to it on mine as well and I will do my own intro to these different sections they have um, a little bit longer intros some span up to 20 or 30 minutes of them talking about the concepts that we get into in the interview so on one hand that might be more than you want to deal with on the other hand sometimes it's nice to get a little a bit of perspective from someone else's point of view, that kind of stuff. So just wanted to throw that out there in case anybody's interested. And other than that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.